One thing that runs throughout Michael Mann's career is, you know, he has strong protagonists. And he said in a recent interview, he said, I think I'm attracted to people who are struggling to do something, to accomplish something. So even though I don't share that interest in, in making a faster race car, I got pulled in at that level, right? This is somebody with a mission, with a task, and how does he do it? It's the procedural at that point, isn't it? And, and, and so you really want to follow that. And beyond that, it's just the eye candy. This is the same guy who gave us Miami Vice, right? Why would people watch that? Hey, it, it's fast cars in Miami. What else do you need? Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about The Color Purple and Ferrari, starting with The Color Purple. So, Mike, I want to start by saying I always try not to read anything about the movie before I go to see it so that it just you know hits me cold. And I didn't realize it was based on the Broadway play. So I went into it thinking, why are they remaking this movie? And it's not a remake. It's a film production of the Broadway play. So with that in mind, I wanted to say that up front because I know I have heard people say, well, why would I go see The Color Proper when I've already seen the classic one with Whoopi Goldberg in it back in the day? So starting with that premise, what kind of preconceived notions did you have going into the movie? Well, we actually should say that I perhaps overprepared. <laughs> and, and what I'm getting at quite seriously is uh, I was thinking a lot about this in terms of what's called intellectual property. Go back to the source novel by Alice Walker from 1982, which I'd read. And it's a very effective book, a very serious book. And, uh, you know, that really launched her career, if you will, and certainly launched this as a property. And why do I call it intellectual property? The thing that's really fascinating, I think, about it in a marketplace sense is that it's been so durable. You have this best-selling, highly acclaimed novel. In 1985, Steven Spielberg turns it into a dramatic film. Then in 2005, there's a Broadway musical, which itself is revived in 2015. And I, I've seen every iteration of this. So I'd read the book. I saw the Spielberg, of course, and I, I've seen it on stage a few times now, the touring Broadway show and community theater production. So I, I know the intellectual property. Uh, and now we get this latest iteration of it. And Marie, you're absolutely right. I, I appreciated the freshness and, and candor of your observation, because I know a lot of people probably are thinking that, thinking, don't I know this already? But however they discover what this actually is, this is a movie musical. The point is, is that it really um, is a property that still works for people. This is a, a genuine crowd pleaser. And having seen it in movie theaters and on live theater, audiences respond to this. Now, I have very mixed feelings about everything but the source novel, which I think is, is really strong. I think that in many ways, because it's such a crowd pleaser, there are times where they do what I refer to as vamping the material. By that, I mean, you do have some outsized characters. You, you do have, you know, Shug Avery and Sophia and these sort of like larger than life characters, boisterous characters. And, yeah, they're going to act out in various ways and it's entertaining and all that. But sometimes I think that both the stage musical and particularly this most recent uh, movie version push that a, a bit far. They, they really are what I call vamping. And, and even though it's still really serious, I mean, the horrible things that happen to the central character, Celia and so on, I mean, emotionally, it does register. It really does. There are times where I just feel like they are going for box office, as I call it. They're kind of softening some of the edges. And I'll give one very specific example. The novel is so centered on Celie, this young girl's awakening, what's called an awakening. And, you know, she's, I don't know if we should detail, but horrible things that happened to her early in life. And, and, you know, she's been so under the thumb, if you will. 
And she has to like come into her own. She has to realize her own worth. She has to speak out for herself, all those uh, positive attributes. And yeah, they get you cheering and crying and all those uh, healthy uh, audience responses. But the deal is this. In the novel, one of the most important aspects is that um, she, Celie, will have a lesbian relationship with Shug Avery, who's this kind of flamboyant uh, vocalist. And it really is important by way of, well, you know, she really is coming to her own. She's accepting and acknowledging all sorts of things. It's central to the thematic of, of the basic story. In every subsequent version, whether Spielberg or on stage or now here, that is like really tamped down. In the current film version, don't blink because you'll miss it. There's a scene that probably lasts for a minute or two at most where the two of them are affectionate. And, and I was watching it in a crowded movie theater. And that's the way to see this, really, because the audience really responds to the material. And I do, too. I, mean, I, I, I may sound cynical sometimes, but I, I get sentimental, too. I responded to it. But at that moment where, where Celie and the other woman you know, are briefly affectionate with each other, some people in the audience, they didn't quite gasp, but there was like, like a kind of sort of audible response. And uh, it's conjecture on my part, was it disapproval? No, I wouldn't say that necessarily, as in a, a combination of surprise and also kind of like puzzlement, like, well, wait a minute now, what's going on here? Why is she doing this? Or this isn't what I expected. And again, I'm reading this into an audience response, which may not be entirely fair on my part. But what happens there is that the moment goes by so quickly that as the film moves into what I'll call the home stretch um, of emotional resolution, it's not quite as effective as I think it could be because it doesn't really give us that fully rounded depiction psychologically of, of Celie at that point in terms of where she's been, where she's going, what she accepts now. And that's again why I feel like the, the film is just, uh, I don't want to say pandering because that's such a, a negative word, but I think it's playing it safe, sort of taking a middle, middle of the road approach to what really is very bumpy, very rough material. So that said, in terms of the film itself, it really, it's well made as a musical. It's really enjoyable. There are terrific performances in it. And I, I was, you know, all pulled into the material that way as well. So even though I had those reservations about the, the, the source story and what had happened to it, um, gosh, it still works really well for an audience. You know, you're absolutely right that you should see this with a bunch of other people in the theater because it does get a strong reaction from people. And that made it more fun to watch. Also, I should say, I love musicals. So I was ready for there to be music and dancing. My fear going in was that it is a serious story. And I was afraid the singing might make it seem more upbeat. But I, that really did not play out the way I, I thought it would. I did notice uh, the missing part of the book that you just mentioned. But then again, this movie has a really long runtime. So they might have even filmed it and cut it to try to make it shorter. Well, that's speculation. I mean, it's 141 minutes and, and there's a lot of story here and a lot of character. It's a long film that didn't feel long. Let's put it that way. Time is a funny thing to talk about with movies. This didn't feel like a long film particularly. And if you're going to have 141 minutes, I think you could devote more than one or two minutes to that relationship between uh, Celie and Shug Avery, right? There are plenty of other places in the film where you could tighten things up and, and, and cut them. I think it was more at the conceptual level that they're going for box office. They're going for a kind of safe, guaranteed to love it thing. They don't want anything that might somehow make the audience either puzzled or disapproving or anything complicating that, that way. And it's a shame, really, because the, the, the basic characterizations and the basic storyline are still there. And, and are still really effective. It seems like, uh, you know, be a little bolder, be a little braver, be more like the novel in that respect. Now, speaking of musicals, I did notice some things I thought maybe were callbacks. Like there's a barn raising scene that made me think of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And then there's a whole dance sequence that made me think of Stormy Weather. Did you see it that way? 
Yeah, I absolutely saw it that way. I, you know, I, I love the the Hollywood musical and its history, and and a lot of uh, musicals are self-referential in various ways. I mean, think about you know, like Singing in the Rain, things like that. They're always sort of evoking earlier eras, earlier styles. And again, because this is a story that takes place from 1909 to 1945, it's the very period when musicals like that were flourishing, right? Certainly in terms of the 30s and 40s and into the 50s. And so yeah, the period ambiance is there. So when you have like Shug Avery, this this performer. the way she sashays in, into a scene, the way she performs. How can you not think about the other music of that period? But very specifically, when, when I think about Hollywood musicals, and there were a few that actually had African-American performers, and I, I emphasize the word few, but there were things like Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather and films like that that did have you know black cast and Southern kind, kind of bucolic subject matter. And I definitely thought about Stormy Weather Uh, in a few places in the film. And I think that's good. I, I like that kind of referentiality, that, that this is not something in a vacuum, that there's a, a history, obviously, of race relations and so on that gets played up in the film. But then, of course, a history of, of, the, of the Hollywood musical and Black performers within it. And so, sure, I found that very pleasing. It's one reason why the film didn't run long for me is because I, I enjoy savoring things like that. And some of the production numbers, though, Maria, where, where I, I think it still is kind of vamping the material, there are places where there's been like some really serious, dramatic material. And, I, and it would be a conceptual issue. How should you deal with that in the musical, right? Uh, but, but there are places here where suddenly everybody's singing and dancing and arms raised and this and that. And I think, well, I don't know. I might not be quite that cheerful right after whatever just happened. Um, and I'm overstating it slightly, but I, th I think sometimes the emotional balance in the film gets, you know, pushed off a little. And I remember with the stage musical, I very much felt that way. Like some really terrible, they're like in the dialogue, which can be a little clunky at times, but within the dialogue, there'd be some serious issues. And then suddenly everybody's singing and dancing. I thought, well, that's one way to get rid of your problems. <laughs> and that's where it's sort of like, and that's that can be an issue in musicals, period. I know that. But here's a case where I thought, either don't put the musical number there, or maybe handle it differently because musical numbers don't have to be upbeat right i mean musical numbers can reinforce you know re really pessimistic and even dour thoughts and this is a case where they like seem determined to lift you out of anything that might get you like permanently upset because it's ultimately about uplift and so uplift the arms in the, in the musical production number and, and again that's at the conceptual level where i, I yeah, i'm quibbling with it but you know i, I might have wanted to see it handled a bit differently Now, one thing that I really liked was Whoopi Goldberg as the midwife who delivers Celie's baby. That was a nice nod to the original. And apparently Oprah uh, Winfrey declined to make any sort of appearance in the film. And I kind of wish she had. Well, she could have if she wanted, because Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg are executive producers of this film. So if she wanted to be in it, she could be in every minute of it if she really wanted it. And I can't read into her thought process here, but I think she probably made the right choice that she didn't want it to be overly referential that way. Because that's almost like taking another curtain call, isn't it? Like, wink, wink, here I am, I'm Oprah. First of all, I'm, you know, rule of the universe, I'm Oprah, right down here I am. But also, and all joking aside there, the fact that it, it might sort of pull us out of the movie. You know what I'm getting at? You'd find yourself, oh, there's Oprah. What I found really intriguing about the Whoopi Goldberg cameo is that, of course, she was so important in the first film, Spielberg. And what they did that was really smart when they were finishing up on this film, preparing for release, even doing talk show appearances on The View and so on, not a word was said about the fact that Whoopi Goldberg had a cameo in this new version. They really kept it under wraps, which is hard to do when you think of all the leaks there could be. Nothing was said whatsoever. So when I saw the film, you know, fresh with an audience, I had no idea. Idea that she was going to be in it. So when she comes on briefly, talk about briefly, we're talking like 30 seconds brief. When she comes on as the midwife, 
there was an audible gasp of recognition in the audience. And I shared, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Whoopi Goldberg. And, and how perfect, how nice. And then that's it. You just get it for those moments. I thought that was rather sweet, actually. I, I, I like that. Again, speaking of self-referential uh, things in a film, the fact that you think back on, on the history of the intellectual property, how much this movie meant to Whoopi Goldberg's career, and how fondly we think of her in the original and so on. And um, you know what? It's good that it was just a cameo because uh, there are so many other, and at this point, younger actors who really make strong appearances here. Let them have the stage. We don't have to always keep bowing to the earlier version, right? But I liked some points of connection like that between the Spielberg version and this new one. Now, in terms of film professor nerd things, Ooh, one I thing love it. <laughs> I knew you'd love it before I even say anything. Yeah, what I used to use from the original movie was as a demonstration of transitioning between characters, the trope of using somebody reading a letter and they start reading it and you hear the person's voice who wrote it. And then they use that as a device to take you into the letter and show you what the person writing is going through. And they use the letter as a way to kind of hand that off. So I was watching in this movie to see if they were going to do that, and they didn't. Do you ever use that technique, Mike, to show something like a letter or a phone call where the two people are on the phone and you're able to switch between two characters' scenes? Well, it's something I talk about because I, I worry about transitions that way. How do you get from scene to scene? Or just in terms of the basic narrative, how do you convey certain information? So uh, what's funny is even, a lot of movies that are contemporary and with contemporary settings will still kind of use that device. Even though how many people actually write letters anymore? <laughs> you know, like I don't mean like a tweet or something. I mean like a full letter. But the letter arrives and it's just like that. this person can't possibly read it quietly. They have to share it with us, the audience, right? So you get, you know, you get voiceover narration. You got all these ways in, to convey it. And it works really well as a dramatic device. And again, particularly in a film like this, where people are separated. And, and again, you know, all jesting aside, one of the points of anxiety here is that Celia will be separated from her own nearest kin, if you will, and her sister and so on, children and, all, and so on. And because of, you know, transportation and communication being what they were back then, you could go years without hearing from somebody. So when finally a letter arrives, how momentous that is. And in this story, it matters a lot that, you know, like I haven't heard from my sister for years, whatever. And, you know, finally a letter, that kind of thing that even before you open the letter and, and learn its contents, your adrenaline gets rushing. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, we always sort of anticipate when the mail arrives, even if it's email. Right. <laughs> well, not always. But, but here it is. Um, and, and I thought the film, for the most part, handled that well, the sense of these people are isolated in a lot of ways, rural location and how much it means to get word from the outside world. And that's really going to factor into Celie's growth as she you know, learns more about what's happened to her own kinfolk and then decides finally to be able to act on it that way. And I'm not going to too much detail here because we may well have some audience members who don't know this story the, the way you and I know it, you, you know, and you, there are things that should be discovered watching it, right, in terms of what happens to a sister, what happens to children and so on. Well, I'll give you the last word on the movie, unless that was it. Otherwise, we can move on to Ferrari. Well, the, because we mentioned how good the acting is, we should mention the actors. Uh, <laughs> yes, Fantasia Perino as, as Seely and, and Danielle Brooks as Sophia, and Corey Hawkins as Harpo. Some others definitely worth mentioning. The one that I would want to single out in particular here is Coleman Domingo as the character Mr., this is a film that obviously will get Academy Award recognition by way of nominations. And uh, there's so many good supporting actors that could cancel each other out when it comes down to the nitty gritty. But Coleman Domingo is terrific because, you know, as Mr. He really is. I shouldn't speak against my own gender, perhaps, but but he's such a bad man. <laughs> he's got so much evil in him. And Domingo fully conveys the evil of this character 
But even though the film itself, I think, is guilty of, quote unquote, vamping, his performance is not. It, it, considering how, how cruel and how overstated his character can be, the performance is understated. That's why it's so menacing. All he has to do is walk into a room and it's like, uh-oh, Mister's here. And, and even before he says anything. And that's an actor who just has to glare at you. He doesn't have to even say anything. So how'd you feel about, about his performance in particular? I agree with everything you say. I thought the standout was Daniel Brooks as Sophia. Because, you know, trying to do the role that was previously done by somebody so famous, that's really kind of difficult. And I thought she was just spectacular. So she is really best. good. She's so entertaining. And like, uh, speaking of from the moment somebody enters the room, right? When she enters the room, said, uh-oh, in a good uh -oh. sense. You know, here she is. <laughs> she just speaks her mind. And she does mm -hmm. it in a way that's hilarious oftentimes. Like, she'll speak up to any man, to anybody, and you don't want to mess with her, right? <laughs> so even, even without musical numbers, she's like a, a musical theater star, isn't she? She enters the room, and you just know she's going to dominate that space. And the film makes really good use of its performers. You know what I mean? It gives them the breathing mm -hmm. space to really inhabit these characters. So all in all, I really liked the film and so did you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're in agreement on that one. I wonder how we're going to fall with Ferrari. I'm going to start off by saying I want to discuss this in terms of it being a car movie because I think that is the audience. And I think as a car movie, it does some things really well. What was your initial reaction to the movie, Mike? I had very mixed feelings about this film. Um, I'm enough of a film geek that I can appreciate technique. And the director, Michael Mann, who's 80 now, still has it. You know, mm -hmm. he knows how to, to direct a film really well. And this is a project he'd been harboring since the year 2000. And we'd fill the rest of our segment, just all the, all the people who were once attached to this film, Kristen oh. Bale, Hugh Jackman, all the actors who dropped in and out and so on. But anyway, it finally did get made. In terms of its making, uh, I'm not at all a race car fan, so I don't go in with that rooting interest. But I was interested in, in, in the mechanics of, of not just the filmmaking, but what these guys are doing. It's, it's Enzo Ferrari. It's set in 1957. There's a major race uh, that he's preparing for, and it's all about speed making the fastest cars you can. And I sort of get pulled into it at that level, even though I don't have the inherent interest in it. Uh, and there's one sequence in particular that is so spectacular. And I, I use that word with caution because it's showing a horrific automobile crash with human fatalities. And I saw it with a crowded uh, audience and there were audible gasps there. And I did too. It was like, I think it was like one of the most effective film sequences I've seen in ages. It was just horrifying. It would be horrifying however you shot it. Let's put it that way. But the way he shoots it shows you in terms of technical expertise, what he can do as a filmmaker. So there were things like that that I found very effective. What I found much less effective was several fold. Speaking of films that sometimes are long and, and, and feel long, this one's only 130 minutes, but it felt long. It has, ironically, for a race car picture, it has kind of a slow pace for much of it. It's a little too deliberate there. The second major disappointment was actually, ironically, the the, the star performance, the, the aptly named Adam Driver um, <laughs> as Enzo Ferrari. I'm not quite sure what he was going for here. I don't know enough about Enzo Ferrari biographically, and this film was based on a 1991 biography of him. Was Driver trying to convey a personality that just was kind of um, inward looking, withdrawn, not all that outgoing, not all that emotive and so on? Because he's kind of dull much of the way through, you know what I mean? It's, it, and I thought, well, is that the way this man really was, or is Adam Driver somehow not quite pulling out what should be in the character and so on. That I, I found disappointing. And, and so overall, I had kind of a blah, uh, you know, or meh response to it. Uh, the one thing that I really did like about the film, beyond the technical expertise of the filmmaking itself, was 
the character who's uh, Ferrari's wife, and, and he's, I should apologize on behalf, on behalf of all Italian men, because, I, and I teach Italian film history courses, and show me a movie where the husband's not philandering, right? The, these men are always cheating on their wives, and I don't know what it is, genetic or in, in the pasta, whatever it is, but these guys are always, these guys are always cheating, right? So anyway, Enzo Ferrari, you know, does have a love affair, does have a child by it, and so on, and has been cheating otherwise as well. And his long-suffering wife, who's no fool, his long-suffering wife is played by Penelope Cruz. And speaking of spectacular, she is. She gives such a powerful performance here. Just the anger she conveys at, at, at how he lives his life and how she's off to the side there and so on. So even though, uh, you know, I, I overall was not enthusiastic about the film, it did have her performance. It did have that technical finesse in the filmmaking. And, and uh, considering that I'm not a big fan of race cars, period, you know, it held my interest. And, and so, uh, you know, all things considered, I, I thought it was a worthwhile film. How about you? Well, I'm I'm going to disagree with you about Adam Driver. I thought he did a great job, and I particularly liked how I wasn't constantly aware that it was Adam Driver. I just saw Maestro, and I just kept seeing, you know, the actor peeking out from underneath the makeup. Where this, I completely bought that he was that character. I also, I do agree with you, Penelope Cruz is fantastic. But I couldn't help wondering while I was watching the movie why there were so many, uh, you know, Americans and Penelope Cruz is Spanish. They couldn't find any Italians to be in this movie. Do you know what, Marie? There's been criticism of the film at that level, and not just from Italian film critics. Other people have actually commented on this, like, and I, and I share your sort of almost like puzzlement over that, right? Like, like there's so many Italian actors who could do that. I just think, honestly, speaking of box office, as we did earlier, I think it's just it's a mainstream commercial film. You got to sell it. To, to an American audience as much as anything. And Adam Driver is, is a bankable actor, right? And what's funny is he's been playing uh, Italians recently. And speaking of film directors who are now under their 80s, uh, Ridley Scott, you know, did House of Gucci with Adam Driver, right? Mm -hmm. And so he, he's playing Italian men and very persuasively. Maybe he's got some Italian gene we don't know about, but he's really, really good at it. And he actually is convincing. I didn't find the performance all that interesting, but he's convincing as Ferrari. You don't find yourself thinking that's Adam Driver. So even though I was disappointed pointed in the characterization, I thought, well, this, for whatever reason, I'm not being drawn to Enzo Ferrari, right? But uh, yeah, he did, he did seem like Enzo Ferrari, even though physically there's not much resemblance between them, but, but he did seem very Italian, if you will. So yeah, I, I give him credit for that. He did look Italian. This wasn't a very interesting Italian. Yeah, I did find my interest in the movie flagging as the, as the movie went on. And, but I, I did think there were moments, you're right about the director, where he really nailed the scene. There's a scene where Adam Driver is in a barbershop and we're looking at the back of his head and at two people that he's facing. So of course you can see the two people that he's facing, but the shot is set up so you see Adam Driver's character in the mirror. I mean, it did drop me out of the movie long enough to say, oh, wow, look at that great shot. But there really was a couple of really, really great shots. Well, great directors, it's a truism, but of course they know where to put the camera. And that's a case, Marie, you're absolutely right. It does sort of call our attention to, to the composition in a way that might pull you out of the film a bit. But in terms of really good camera work, again, it's no, it's nothing um, particularly novel in terms of placing a camera in the driver's seat, but this guy really does it well. And so how often you really feel like you're sharing the POV of the driver um, in a race. And then strategically knowing when to put you in the car and when to pull the camera back to give you like a landscape shot. You know, it might seem seem like those things are givens. This is a basic filmmaking. But, you know, a lot of films don't do that particularly well. And this film does. So even though I didn't care about who won a race, I, I felt myself caring about it to some extent. So, again, that has a lot to do with the filmmaking as craft more than anything else. So I would say I was puzzled 
in that this movie was so much less compelling than Ford versus Ferrari. It's so funny you say that. I felt the same way. I thought Ford versus Ferrari is a terrific film, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and it's exciting. And the scenes of racing are well done, but not overdone. I was just surprised that, you know, they weren't able to to borrow more of the cadence and, and pacing from that movie. I will also say that if you're interested in racing movies, a better movie is The Art of Racing in the Rain, which is which is a dog movie. But it's such a great movie. And it does have a through line to uh, a storyline about Ferrari. Very satisfying. I would watch this one. I would watch The Art of Racing in the Rain before I would go see Ferrari again. We've never taught a course on race car movies. You know, these are like, <laughs> we've done this almost about everything, right? But not that. I don't know, not that I'm asking for it, but actually Ford versus Ferrari, you know, joking aside, that is, is a really good film. So if you're interested in race cars, particularly, that's actually the one I'd recommend. Also, I wanted to ask you, uh, I couldn't help but think that the reason I even know about Ferraris at all is because isn't that the car that Magnum P.I. drove in the TV show? Oh, gosh, I'd, I'd have to do some further research there. But I, I do know that Michael Mann as a director owns race cars, including Ferraris. And so, you know, I, I oftentimes will read about them. And, you know, there's a status symbol that way. Like a lot of the people who own them are not really race car professionals. But, you know, if you have more money than you know what to do with, what do you do? You buy a Ferrari, something like that. It, uh, it's one of the 12 cars in the garage, right? The garage <laughs> is bigger than your house. But, 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 and that's one reason, well, you know, it's one of those Italian luxury brands, frankly, right? You know, where, where they're talking talking high fashion or, or high automobile fashion. And that actually, even though I'm not a car person, there were some beautiful cars in this film. So yeah, go to see it for the cars. In terms of garages, I think you might be talking about Jay Leno's garage, not my garage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but given the setup in the movie, do you think uh, somebody is going to decide we need to have another car movie called Maserati? Well, you know, every few years we do get a, a, a race track film, don't we? And I'm not part of that audience, but there is a big fan base for those motor sports. I mean, I know I'm aware of that. I'm not part of it, but certainly know about it. So that's like a built in. And that this doubles back on your earlier question. Why are there so many uh, American or otherwise international actors in this Italian, very Italian story? It's because it's really playing to an international audience. It, it wants pe people in America to go see it because they either like, you know, these movie stars or, or they like the cars. They like both. Let's put it this way. Put a, put a Hollywood movie star in an Italian sports car. Can't go wrong. <laughs> There is a reference in the film to Ferrari being a craftsman in metal. And I do think that those scenes where you see like the blueprints and stuff, that stuff was really kind of interesting. Otherwise, I think this was a miss, um, except for Penelope Cruz. I think she's definitely in line for Best Actress uh, nomination. Well, one thing that runs throughout Michael Mann's career is, you know, he has strong protagonists. And he said in a recent interview, and this is directly to the point you just made, he said, I think I'm attracted to people who are struggling to do something, to accomplish something. So even though I don't share that interest in, in making a faster race car, I got pulled in at that level, right? This is somebody with a mission, with a task. And how does he do it? It's the procedural at that point, isn't it? And, and, and so you really want to follow that. And beyond that, it's just the eye candy. This is the same guy who gave us Miami Vice, right? Mm -hmm. Why would people watch that? Hey, it, it's fast cars in Miami. What else do you need? I think that says it all. And that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then.